Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. Our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. How do you take your coffee? Here in New Orleans, generations preferred their coffee with chicory and most often Olay, served with hot milk. Phyllis Jordan changed all that back in the late 70s when she daringly opened PJ's Coffee a place where, shockingly, there was no chicory in the coffee, and even more surprising, you could also enjoy it cold. On this week's show, Phyllis tells the story of how it all began in her one-room cafe on Maple Street, and how what today is called New Orleans-style iced coffee was born. Louisiana Eats producer Sarah Holtz took her investigative reporting to Seattle, the home of Starbucks, for an up-close look at the coffee culture there today. Sarah reports on her findings, and then we visit one of today's newest coffee leaders, French Truck, where we'll enjoy a cupping session and learn why small batch roasting makes all the difference. So get ready to wake up and smell the coffee on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Phyllis Jordan. I'm the founder of PJ's Coffee. On September 5, 1978, Phyllis Jordan opened a small shop in New Orleans she called PJ's Coffee. For over two decades under her leadership, PJ's Coffee became the city's first coffeehouse chain, as well as a beloved local institution. With the modern proliferation of coffee chains and the rise of coffeehouse culture, it's easy to forget that once upon a time, you'd be hard-pressed to find specialty coffee in the United States. And in New Orleans in the late 70s, one particular kind of coffee held sway, one that a newly arrived transplant was not very keen on. Yeah, um, coffee in New Orleans was, um, it was chicory coffee. It was, you drank chicory coffee. And that was it. Pretty much. Phyllis Jordan moved to New Orleans by way of the Midwest in 1977. She was a social worker for a number of years before going to work in retail stores. I loved retail. I loved the physical work. I loved the talking to people. I loved the selling. I loved the organizing it to make it easy for people, all those parts. Um, so I wanted to stay in retail. But, you know, the social worker part of me was still involved in, you know, having people be together and benefit from each other. And I had seen how coffee did that, coffee shops. What coffee does, especially hot coffee, which until iced coffee came along, it was hot coffee, you had to sit still for a little while to drink it, which meant you had to sit someplace, which made it possible to say, I can I can join you for a cup of coffee. It, there's a There's a very logical reason why it invites people to be together. And 
I was lucky enough to have seen coffee starting up, or specialty coffee starting up on the West Coast. I lived there for a while. And when I came here and realized no one was really doing that, I thought there's an opportunity here. With no formal business education, Phyllis opened PJ's Coffee and Tea Company on Maple Street, anchored in the university section. Originally, PJ's was strictly a retail store, selling a varied selection of coffees by the pound, loose-leaf teas, and all the accoutrements. All the paraphernalia for the rituals of friendship was one of the lines I used in advertising. Though the word paraphernalia is a little bit loaded and didn't really bring in a wide audience. Um, So I started that way, and I wasn't making it. Maple Street didn't have the foot traffic to really make that work. So I thought, well, what can I do? I can either expand into gourmet products broadly, but I was smacking between the original Whole Foods and uh, Langensteins. That was really not going to be a good plan. Or I could invest in a $75 used commercial coffee maker and start making coffee. Part of my thinking was, well, people could sample the, the coffees, you know, but they'd have to pay me for the sample. <laughs> um, Upon installing a used bun coffee maker, Phyllis opened a cafe in her one-room shop, furnished with only a table and four chairs. And when that table and four chairs started filling up on a more regular basis, I put in more tables and chairs and more tables and chairs. And and that's how it worked. So I always had two coffees, at least, a medium roast and a dark roast. And it it changed by by the day. And... um, you know, it was just, it was trial and error. I, you know, I made all the mistakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nonetheless, the lines at the counter kept getting longer, and Phyllis began the process of transforming her business into a coffee powerhouse. She challenged old concepts of coffeehouse culture and brought in a breath of fresh air. Well, a coffee house in 1980 or so, when I was first doing this part of the business, was really connected to beatniks, which is a very old word, but it still it, it, the coffee house conjures up beatniks, darkness, and only a certain kind of cool that you could be. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted moms to come in with their kids. I wanted business people to come in to do some paperwork. I wanted everyone to feel comfortable coming in. So I always played classical music, but not orchestral music. I played chamber music because you could talk over it. And encouraging conversation was a big part of what I was after. Over the next several years, as she could afford it, Phyllis began to install better equipment and expand cafe operations. An espresso machine made its first appearance in the early 80s. Changes were slow, but sensible. I can only push the envelope so far, for one thing. I mean, people still would walk into my store and say, oh, you'll never make it. Because we, we drink chicory coffee here. Uh-huh. And I said, well, that's fine. Good. <laughs> you stay over there. Um, and uh, and I, I did from time to time sell chicory coffee, but I hated it. And I just did it to appease my staff. And then I would say, no, you were not going to do this. And the reason I didn't want, didn't want to do it is chicory is a whole different plant. And you can't put whole bean coffee and chicory through a grinder because it will gum the grinder up. So you have to sell it as a ground coffee product. I couldn't make myself do that. For freshest reasons, I was going to sell whole bean coffee. 
1984, PJs moved into whole bean roasting to further assure their coffee's freshness. That same year, Phyllis opened her second coffee house in uptown New Orleans. Someone who'd been baking for me, because I did have, by the time I had pastries from various small bakers, um, decided that it would be better for him if he just opened his own coffee house on Magazine Street. And so he, he did that. And he used colors that I was using in my store. And, oh. you know, he, he just kind of ripped me off. Yeah, he just kind of Which, franchised without a franchise. Yeah, yeah, before I was franchising. And yeah. um, that really made me mad. Luckily, I was able to buy him out. And I did that. And uh, that's how the Magazine Street store was started. That was the second store was Magazine Street. Then Tulane University came to me and said, we'd like to have something on campus. I think it was 250 square feet. It was very, very small. It was a glass box. It was impossible to cool in the summertime. Anyway, that was just fabulous. I mean, that was such a great place to be. As the Coffee by the Cup business expanded to Tulane's campus, Phyllis's original concept for PJs was amended to make room for grab-and-go. Well, in spite of my very strong feelings about a lot of things, I do have a little bit of sense, and so I did understand that I had to have a to-go cup pretty early, um, although I tried to keep China in the stores for a very long time. So I was already doing coffee to-go by that point. Um, so I guess that wasn't too much of a leap for me. But, you know, uh, in other markets, I don't. I think we've had only a couple of them tr- be tried here without success, is the drive-through only coffee oh. business. Yeah. And I never wanted to do that because... I always figured if you came through a drive-thru at a PJ's, and we did have them, at least you knew there were people inside. Yeah. That you could have, if, if only you could sit down and, and stay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I, so I just, I did adjust. I did make adjustments to my um, strongly held views, or I would have starved. <laughs> Other adjustments Phyllis made were triggered by national and local chains, like Community Coffee, expanding their cafe operations in the 1990s. Community, of course, started probably 1991, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they were the only multiple location competition that I had until Starbucks came in town. My goodness. And they, of course, opened their very first store, three doors down from my Maple Street store, which was the most successful store, which is a great retail strategy. Of course. I had a line out the door every morning. And it was easy pickings. That back of that line was real easy to get. So that's when we introduced the express line. Because <laughs> by that time, there was the lattes and there was the, you know, the syrups and the you know, this, 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 and that. And if you want to come in and get a cup of hot black coffee, and you can put your cream and sugar in it by yourself, or an iced coffee, which is very easy to get to a customer quickly. Um, That was the express line. Perhaps PJ's greatest national contribution, something Phyllis is rarely given credit for, is the introduction of what today is often called New Orleans-style iced coffee. Starbucks may have opened first in 1971, but it was over 20 years before they began serving their version of iced coffee, something they trademarked, Frappuccino. Meanwhile, here in New Orleans, Phyllis was experimenting with her version of iced coffee, an idea sparked by a childhood memory. I'm a native of St. Louis, 
which is a very German city. And my mother and her friends in the subdivision drank iced coffee. And it was a German tradition. Now, that, their idea of iced coffee was yesterday's coffee poured over ice and so forth, which is an abomination as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there was, at the time, a, a coffee supplier in New Orleans named Mike Buckley, who I was buying some coffee from. And Mike knew about the Toddy Coldwater coffee maker. So I started doing cold brew coffee for iced coffee only. That was phenomenally successful. So between my mother and Mike Buckley, I was able to make it happen. In the mid-'80s, Phyllis was the first retailer serving iced coffee commercially in New Orleans. Pretty much. And really, across the country, I was pretty much the first one. Amazing. Because I can remember going into coffee meetings at national levels, you know, mid-'80s. All the big coffee, the General Mills people and all those guys, would stand up at me and say that young people just aren't going to drink coffee. Young people do not drink coffee, and they're, not, they're never going to. They want it cold. And I'd stand up and say, uh, yes, I'm doing cold coffee in New Orleans. It's doing very well. Yes, a young audience is very attracted to this. And then they would, they, I would sit down. And nobody paid any attention to me for a long, long, long time. Now it is a phenomenon. At the turn of the century, the 21st century, that is, between the stores Phyllis owned and stores that were franchised, there were over 30 PJ's coffee shops in Orleans Parish and throughout the Gulf South. So at what point did this New Orleans coffee pioneer decide to call it a day? <laughs> it was about 99 or 2000. Of course, these kind of things take a while to mature and to happen. There were many, many steps involved. Um, um, but I, I was tired. I was tired. You know, I have a BA in sociology. That's my educational background. Yeah. <laughs> I learned to love to read a financial statement. I can't put one together, but I love to read them. I love to use them as a tool. That was about as close as I got to being really businesslike, and I, but I was good about that. So over time, I, I found a buyer. Um, that luckily didn't work out. It was bought by a group of people in Atlanta, and um, it has been bought back from Atlanta by the Ballard Brothers in Covington, and they now are running it out of Covington, still being roasted within view of the Mississippi River on P North Peters Street, and it's still being roasted by people that I hired. <laughs> <laughs> Phyllis Jordan, founder of her namesake PJ's Coffee of New Orleans and mother of iced coffee. Coming up next, we travel from the Crescent City to the Emerald City to learn what baristas are serving up in Seattle's coffee shops today. Louisiana Eats returns after a coffee break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. 
edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. The latest wave of coffee in New Orleans, and much of the old guard coffee culture for that matter, can be traced back to the city of Seattle. Along with being the birthplace of Starbucks, this famously gray and rainy metropolis continues to influence third wave coffee shops across the world. Our Louisiana Eats team has more than one connection to Seattle. Senior producer Joe Schreiner lived there before becoming a New Orleanian, and producer Sarah Holtz is just back from a visit there. Realizing how truly colossal Seattle's coffee culture is, Sarah began recording conversations with baristas across the city. After visiting 10 different coffee establishments, she sent us this highly caffeinated postcard. Could you tell us where we are? Super Bueno Cafe. What neighborhood are we in? Uh, we are in Fremont, center of the universe. <laughs> cool. And uh, what's the most unusual drink that you serve here? Uh, right now we have our special drink is an Havana latte, which is going to be oat milk um, with a little bit of brown sugar, cinnamon, and nutmeg with uh, the espresso mixed in. And then we do a sprinkle of cinnamon and nutmeg on top. Um, probably the 85% dark chocolate mocha. I'd say it's probably the Mocha Diablo. It's a hot and spicy mocha with a little bit of cayenne. Most unusual drink? Oh my gosh. I have to have Sarah chime in on this. Sarah, Sarah, what's our most unusual drink that you think we've had? I mean, we have super lattes, which are like, we have a charcoal latte, a golden latte, so things that are very like from the earth. I mean, we have, we're kind of known to have a few interesting drinks. Like we do what's called a deconstructed espresso, which is an eight ounce latte, broke up into three different glasses. So the double shot split into one shot neat, one shot into a small cortado-like drink. And then the third glass has just straight milk because we use such a nice organic grass-fed, non-homogenized milk. It's nice to drink the milk by itself as well. So it's kind of like a little mini flight or a latte broke into three. People come far and wide to try that, and that's probably our signature, you might say. Chocolate's everywhere. Like, if you look at this building, you will find chocolate somewhere on the railing or on the wall or upstairs somewhere behind a chair. It just, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're here in Wallingford off of 45th, and uh, I forget the other cross street. Yeah. But, oh, the name of the business. Yeah, Chocolati. Elm Coffee Roasters. Pioneer Square. We're at Slate Coffee Roasters in Seattle, Washington. What neighborhood? Pioneer Square. That's the oldest part of downtown Seattle. This is Ladybug Bikini Espresso. It's a small stand with red and black spots on it. Um, we make coffee here in lingerie. Could you uh, tell us where we are? Yeah. Seattle. Yeah. 
like pretty common that people want a non-dairy option. <laughs> we have like oat milk, almond milk, soy, hemp milk, coconut milk, and those are like pretty standard for us now. Yeah, coconut, soy, almond, rice, hemp, and I think that covers all of them. So yeah, we're like more of a third wave shop. We have a story about how we source our beans. Like we usually know the producers have developed some sort of relationship with them, negotiate a contract for their co coffee directly with them and pay upwards of three to four times market price for their coffee. And in return, we get a way higher quality bean that has more unique drying processes usually carried out on it, which brings out all sorts of different flavors, especially when roasted light, like we do. So all the way from seed to cup, this coffee has way more love and let's say consideration put into it. So like, it's tailor-made to create an experience in just a single black cup of coffee. Before I left for Seattle, Joe had given me a few recommendations of cafes to check out. One place in particular stood out from Joe's list. It's called Joe Bar in the Capitol Hill neighborhood where I used to live. I used to spend a lot of time there. As it turns out, the baristas at Joe Bar have a unique take on coffee culture, just the sort of approach that turns customers into regulars. People usually will come in and uh, and make up their own creation. They'll uh, they'll ask for a latte, no foam, non-fat, like decaf, no latte, no espresso, just just yeah, <laughs> just whatever. To the point where it's uh, unrecognizable from the original thing. <laughs> just like look back. We have a like, regular that asks for like a uh, half calf, extra hot hemp milk sugar-free vanilla, double-cupped, like 30 add-ons, you know what I mean? But she knows that it's like super high-maintenance. In fact, she calls it the HMMF drink, the <laughs> high-maintenance mf -er drink. And she only comes in like once a week to like be cool, you know? And, the, and she's really nice about it. Yeah, and in that case, uh, we'll see her walk in and be like, oh, I gotta get started on this exact drink. And it becomes normal, you know, you know how to make it. Is that like a $20 drink or what? <laughs> I think it ends up being almost $7. Like, <laughs> pretty expensive, but not quite $20. Like seven fifty or something. That's a wild one. But yeah, you know, I think people kind of see the vibe here and they know that it's not exactly uh, Starbucks. Thank God, uh, and it's not, you know, we're not necessarily a third wave coffee house, we're more of like a, what would you call it, like a 2.5 wave, <laughs> like 1.5 wave or something, coffee house, where it's... Oh, it's been here for so long. Yeah, like, we've been yeah. in this location for over 20 years, so, you know, people have kind of grown with us, and they know what to expect most of the time, you know, so we don't, we probably don't get as many crazy requests as some places. That being said, you know, we try to like be cool about it and not give them too much of a hard time. You know, just uh, just, just roll it, with yeah. it. I'll make whatever, whatever yeah. I'm able to make, I'm happy to make, you yeah. know, for anyone. That was an audio postcard sent to us by Louisiana Eats producer Sarah Holtz from the coffee capital of the world, Seattle, Washington. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in Seattle. And the hills, the greenest green is Seattle Like a beautiful child Growing up free and wild Full of dreams to last the years in Seattle While riding around New Orleans, you may have seen a tiny antique yellow truck 
and done a double take. These unusual European antique vehicles belong to French Truck Coffee, a small batch purveyor of fine coffee that's become wildly popular over the past few years. Owner Jeffrey Meeker and his team are at the vanguard of what many are calling the third-wave coffee movement in America, a culture that comes with its own vocabulary, from cortado to OG. We visited Jeffrey for a tour and cupping. That's coffee's equivalent to a wine tasting. To begin, I asked Jeffrey how he went from a career in fine dining to roasting coffee. So I came to New Orleans back in 1999 to help open the W Hotel that is no longer on Poitras um, and worked all over the country in fine dining restaurants. Then we moved away right after the storm. Um, and while we were away, my cousin brought me a bag of freshly roasted coffee and I tasted it and it was better than any coffee I'd ever had in my life. And I had been working in fine dining restaurants all my life and I had no idea why coffee could taste this much better than it had ever tasted in all these nice restaurants that I worked in. It was from a company in San Francisco that you might know of, Blue Bottle. So I started doing the research and I figured out that the guy who started Blue Bottle was a clarinetist in the San Francisco Philharmonic. <laughs> had no cooking They're experience. Qualified. I figured if he could do it, I could do it. And so I started putting it all together um, and I fell in love with these little French trucks. Where'd you find these little French trucks? Well, this one is actually was built in Belgium and was with a collector in New York. Um, we also have one that is actually the oldest example in the United States. It's a 1955, um, and it was in uh, Quebec. And then our original one, which is the little yellow one that's the same color as uh, Veuve Clicquot label, which is yes. where I got the color, is uh, from Bordeaux and was a plumber's truck. Um, but there's not a whole lot of them left. There's only about 100 examples in the United States. They're two-cylinder engines, so little tiny engine, and they get 50 miles per gallon, and they're perfect for New Orleans. So, Jeffrey, the business really started in the little trucks. What Kinda. happened? It, the trucks were my delivery vehicle, and obviously my marketing as well. Um, but I started out in my laundry room with a little tiny roaster, and I went around to all the people I knew in, in the food business and said, hey, I'm back in New Orleans. And oh, what are you doing? What restaurant are you working at? And I explained it. And they said, oh, well, let me try some. And then we just started building more and more and more and started doing more and more wholesale. I think we've got 30 restaurants in the area that use our coffee. Um, we started out in the warehouse right behind the building we're at now with no windows, barely any air conditioning. Then we moved to this space and opened the little shop in the front. And then most recently, we opened the place on Dryads. Would you talk to us briefly about what is being called today third wave coffee? Would you walk us through that? Sure. So first wave coffee would be considered Folgers, Maxwell House, the stuff our parents bought when we were growing up. and. Uh, used to be that you would go to the, the, the small local store and they'd have a coffee roaster in the corner and a bag of coffee and they'd just roast some every week and everybody'd go buy it. Well then World War One to the mechanization of pretty much all of our food stuffs happened. Um, and then you got these huge roasters like Folgers and Maxwell House and it became less regional. Then you had second wave and second wave really happened in the 60s and 70s and that was Starbucks, Pete's. A lot of those national brands started really changing things and you know, a lot of people have some disdain for what Starbucks does, but if it weren't for Starbucks, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. 
because people wouldn't pay good money for coffee. They would just think Folgers pricing. You know, you can still buy a can of Folgers for under $10, and that's a big can. So when I tell somebody I've got a bag of coffee that's $14 or $15, they don't blink because of Starbucks. Third wave, um, and you know, technically I guess we fall under it, is what we do, which is more of a um, connoisseur's approach to coffee, more of a uh, craft and very much pulling from the culinary world and the wine world on how you do things to maximize the experience of the coffee. And what about the mystique of the pour over? Well, it's not complicated, number one. Number two, it is a uniquely American way to prepare coffee. But, you know, if you have the right equipment, the right temperature of water, and the right ratio of water to coffee, it's, to my estimation, the very best cup of coffee you can have because of the, the craft of it. And we actually just installed a robot at our Dryad Street that makes pour overs, and so they are perfectly the same every time. Oh my goodness, from a little teeny teeny antique truck <laughs> from France to a robot. Now yes. you've really hit the full spectrum here. <laughs> yes. So what are we gonna see next? Um, let's go inside, we'll show you some of the equipment and then we'll um, taste some of the fruits of that later. So, so now we're where all the action happens. Right, this is all of our manufacturing currently. Um, and you can see with these huge piles of coffee, um, that's about a week and a half worth of coffee that we'll roast. Um, when it comes in, it comes in from the farmers um, having been stripped down to what we can roast. Mm -hmm. And you can smell that. It almost smells like green peas a little bit. Yeah, it does. Um, and this is how it comes in um, from all over the world. So in front of you, you've got Colombia, there's some Sumatra, Peru. How do you source your coffee? Our coffee, um, we work with a broker, and the broker helps put relationships together with um, farmers. Um, we sample roast the coffee, so we get these little tiny samples, and we roast those up, and we taste them, and we do a cupping, like we're going to do here in a few minutes, to ascertain the quality, um, what roast level we should roast it to, to make sure that it's maximizing its flavor potential. It's very much like food or wine. You, with wine, you've got to make sure that it's got just the right amount of oak and just the right amount of age. Same thing with coffee. We have to just, just the right amount of roast. Um, and that's, that's important for us to figure out so that we can give our customers that information so that they can have as great an experience at home as we can provide in the cafes. Jeffrey, is it unusual for a relatively small coffee operation to have a relationship with the, directly with the farmers? It's changing, and similar to the wine industry, where all the farmers used to dump all their wine together and there was just Bordeaux wine, the coffee farmers have figured out that some of them do a better job than others, and so they ought to get paid more. And with the advent of technology, iPhones, etc., um, it's much easier to get those connections made. You don't have to get on a donkey and go down a trail to go talk to the farmer. You can get him on his iPhone and ask him how his crop's doing that year and does he want to buy, do, can you buy from him again that year. Explain the economics of this. Well, um, the farmer um, does all of the work. Really, we are 10% of the equation. And so that farmer then goes to his local co-op and says, I want to sell coffee. And if that local co-op is hooked up with someone like us, 
they can see how much potential that coffee has and then get it into our hands to say, your coffee's really good, you've been doing a really good job at a farmer, these guys will pay more because of the quality of your coffee. Have um, you met any of your farmers? We have, and one of, it, it nearly moved me to tears was meeting one of our farmers and him standing with his family in front of a house with a bag of our coffee in his arms as a, like a trophy or a prize explaining to us that the money that we had given him for his coffee helped him build the new house for his family. How exciting. Yeah. It must be so rewarding to not only be giving people truly delicious coffee, but to know you're making a difference in another part of the world. Yeah, and it makes everything make sense. And it gives us more reverence for what we're doing. Well, where would you like us to go now? Let's, yeah, let's look at some of the roasting equipment and um, explain how it works, and then we'll uh, taste some coffee. So um, this is our big baby. Um, this is our pride and joy. The coffee starts at the very top in this funnel. So you've got a big cylinder in there with paddles to move the beans around. And when the temperature is exactly right, the roaster has a trap door under here and it'll let all the beans into that chamber. And then as it cooks, it's very much like baking bread, we go through different stages of browning and caramelization so that we create those sugars in the coffee to make it sweet or bitter or citrusy. Visually, what are you looking for? Well, visually is not nearly as important as is scent and sound. Um, there sound? Are, yes. Coffee goes through something called first crack and it happens around 385 to 390 degrees. And the coffee, it's almost like popcorn. It gives up and it makes a pop sound. We're gonna hear it here in just a few minutes. It'll start popping. And that is a really good indication to the roaster that it's developed enough of those caramels and those flavors, but it's time to start paying attention to when to get it out of there and cool it off. And the smells, I think when you smelled it before, probably got a little baking bread. Uh-huh. Um, we'll start getting more of those coffee smells. I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever heard about the sound. Our target temperature is really close. Let's stay here for just a second and watch what happens. So, downdraft has just turned on. We heard a beep. Um, that's the computer telling the fan to turn on so that we are ready to cool the coffee off so it doesn't go over temperature. And now the stirring mechanism has turned on and the door opens. So now we're at what we call our cupping table. And if you look at it, it's basically a giant lazy Susan on skateboard wheels. Um, <laughs> and what we do at this table is this is where we're deciding whether or not um, a coffee is of a quality we want to buy, number one. And then number two, after we have made the commitment to buying it, how do we want to roast it? So what I'd have you do to begin with is we've got five different coffees on the table, three single origin, and then there are also two blends on the table. So I'm gonna run the grinder here. difference between uh, freshly roasted coffee and coffee that's about, let's say, a month old, it's night and day. Um, so what we start out with is 
take it and just kind of knock it against your palm to, to shake up the molecules and give it a good sniff. And then we'll turn the table. So what we're doing now is we're ascertaining what different aromatics it has. And it may have chocolate, it may have almonds, blueberries, raspberries, mango, black pepper, coffee. Amazing. Yeah, coffee's just as, just as complicated as, as food and wine as far as the aroma compounds. So the next step in our cupping, now that our coffee has cooled down and we're taking the grounds off the top, is to slurp the coffee. I liked the best was the very, very darkest one. Oh yeah? I'm yeah. not surprised. Coffee is like food and wine, it's experiential. And it ties back to memories. Because aroma is our most tightly wound memory. So on the table, we had a Kenyan. This is from Peru. And that's a single origin, that's a single origin. This is La Grand Coq Rouge, which is our breakfast blend, and it's a Colombian-based blend that we serve to a lot of restaurants that would like to have a breakfast blend. This is an Ethiopian. And then this is our New Orleans Premium Dark Roast, which is the darkest of our coffees, and it's a blend of Colombian and Brazilian coffee. I guess you can't take the hometown <laughs> girl out of the hometown, even That's when right. it comes to gourmet coffee. That's right. So you want to end with your favorite? That yes. way you've got it. That was wonderful. I'm glad you liked it. Jeffrey Meeker, owner of French Truck Coffee. world's most widely consumed psychoactive drug? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. You'll also find video content on the site, including new fishing and camp videos from our friends at Don Seafood. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What is the world's most widely consumed psychoactive drug? 
It's caffeine. Caffeine acts as a central nervous system stimulant. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's official position on caffeine is that it's, I quote, generally recognized as safe. That's especially true if you're consuming your caffeine in cups of hot coffee. But here's a word of caution to you iced coffee lovers. Tom Oliver of Coffee Science on Broad Street in New Orleans explains that iced coffee, by its very nature, is consumed more quickly than hot, delivering that jolt of caffeine with amazing speed. Back in the 1980s, Tom was manager at the now mythical French Quarter coffee house, Caldi's, where the specialty was an iced coffee drink known as Viennese Creme. Apparently, the high level of caffeine contained in that particular drink created some pretty serious fans, or should I say, addicts. Tom swears that he personally remembers six different occasions when customers were so irate that the Viennese creme had run out, the police had to be summoned. And yes, arrests were made. At Coffee Science, Tom has resurrected Caldi's Viennese creme so today's coffee lovers can give it a try. So far, no arrests. But you'd better be careful with that caffeine. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. You're under arrest for stealing my heart. You'll find that crime doesn't pay. Your sentence is life, darling, here by my side. This is the price you must pay. In Natchez, Mississippi, a storm is brewing. History and innovation are merging there, making it more than just a tourist town. It's also a place where younger generations are beginning to feel at home, and baby boomers who made their fortunes elsewhere are returning to make their mark on the historic town. On an early weekday morning, the Louisiana Eats crew made its way to Steampunk Coffee in Natchez. Greeting us with a cup of coffee in his hand was Dub Rogers. So this is it. You want an espresso, a cappuccino, a coffee? After spending most of his life living in New York and California, Natchez-born Dub has returned home and is now shaking things up with a number of investments. After grabbing a cup of coffee to go, Dub took us next door to a rustic wooden building overlooking the river walk along the bluff. The name of the place was Smoot's Grocery. My name is Dub Rogers and my friends call me Pappy Smoot. This was my home. It's on my birth certificate in Natchez, Mississippi. I moved back here from from New York and from California. I lived in New York for 30 years and uh, decided to come back to Natchez. In doing so, I met a really lovely woman and uh, sort of decided uh, if I was going to stay here, I had to do something. So because I had a really hard time, in fact, impossible time finding a nice cup of espresso, I uh, decided to uh, go into the coffee business. In 2012, I established Steampunk Coffee Roaster Company. LLC, and um, 
and then it took about a year planning around with it before we actually opened up the Steampunk Espresso Bar, which is September the 13th, 2013, a Friday, by the way. So uh, people started discovering us, uh, primarily uh, travelers from out of town, a lot of Europeans, Australians, uh, people from all over the United States, North America. And they would say, wow, this is a great little place, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we're spending the night, we're on our way from New Orleans to Clarksdale or to Memphis, Nashville, wherever they're going on their music junket. And they would say, um, we want to hear some live music. We want to hear some blues. Is there any place happening in town? So uh, usually there was nothing going on. Every now and then somebody would come and play, but there wasn't anything regular where people were doing, um, you know, live performance regular, like at Tipitina's or the Maple Leaf or Preservation Hall. So um, from my experiences with those establishments, I was thinking, this people are asking for this. People want it. So I was compelled to do something about it. Uh, so I managed to acquire the building and, uh, and do this arduous restoration, which took a year and a half. And it's been a, a really great ride. We've had live music three nights a week since then. And I always fantasize about coming back here and finding a little building, restoring it and hanging my shingle and just being a little old man shopkeeper and. But, but I did. I came back and I, I followed through on my dreams. How so, many yeah, different so, businesses do you have now in Natchez Town? I have, uh, wow, uh, four <laughs> different businesses right now. One is the coffee company, two is Smooch Grocery, then we have a food truck, and then the other thing, which is a hobby job, is uh, reclaiming building materials. So what about the food truck? Well, the food truck just came out because I love food truck culture. I, I like being on the road and on the go and uh, being spontaneous and, uh, and, and not having it so brick and mortar and serious. And the food truck was um, originally, what about it, was a, a snowball truck. So I converted to this white snow, snowball truck to this black steampunk super SWAT truck. So it's like flat black, like a hot rod. It's, we uh, set it up as a coffee truck with espresso and uh, everything we do at our coffee house, we did in the truck. Everybody I speak with here, many, many of them have gone away, many for mm, like 30 years. And they come back and the theme I keep hearing is that everything's the same, everything's the same, but it seems like Maybe you're the, um, the dilettante who's changing things. Yeah, I'm a catalyst <laughs> for change. If I can change it, uh, if it can be changed, I can change it. And I've heard a lot of times that Dub, you know, we stayed in Natchez because of what you're doing, because you have brought what we want, what we, what we need to like sustain us to be here. And, uh, and if it wouldn't been for you, we, we would have been gone a long time ago. And a lot of people say, hey, you're a good reason to come back. Mississippi needs a lot of help right now. And um, if it's not people like me, and a lot, a lot of people like me, then it's gonna be a sorry state for the end of time. But I see a real bright, um, bright spot for Mississippi. I think it's uh, a jewel and a quirky place. And I think if people would just, you know, move on and bring this modern Mississippi thing uh, on, I think uh, it's gonna be great for everyone.
That was Dub Rogers, proprietor of Steampunk Coffee in Natchez, Mississippi. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcasts and also order a personalized copy of my new book, the just-released Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, Producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 